Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, and then we'll move down to verse 29. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons, who died after they entered the Lord's presence and burned the wrong kind of fire before him. The Lord said to Moses, Warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. If he does, he will die. For the ark's cover, the place of atonement is there, and I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover. When Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. He must bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He must put on his linen tunic and the linen undergarments worn next to his body. He must tie the linen sash around his waist and put the linen turban on his head. These are the sacred garments, so he must bathe himself in water before he puts them on. Aaron must take from the community of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now come with me down to verse 29, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29. On the tenth day of the appointed month in early autumn, you must deny yourselves. Neither native-born Israelites nor foreigners living among you may do any kind of work. This is a permanent law for you. On that day, offerings of purification will be made for you, and you will be purified in the Lord's presence from all your sins. It will be a Sabbath day of complete rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. This is a permanent law for you. In future generations, the purification ceremony will be performed by the priest who has been anointed and ordained to serve as high priest in place of his ancestor Aaron. He will put on the holy linen garments and purify the most holy place, the tabernacle, the altar, the priests, and the entire congregation. This is a permanent law for you, to purify the people of Israel from their sins, making them right with the Lord once each year. Moses followed all these instructions exactly as the Lord had commanded him. Now this morning, I'm not teaching. Daniel's teaching. Now I gave him this assignment several months ago so that he would have plenty of time to prepare and bring a teaching to us on the Day of Atonement. So I invite you to pray with me before I hand over to Daniel to teach this morning. Our Father, we are continuing to be in your presence and we thank you for the work and the research that Daniel has put into this, the study of the scriptures, the prayer, and we ask you now, Lord, to bring forth that word from his spirit that would speak to our spirit by your Holy Spirit to achieve your purposes for your glory. Amen. Amen. It's been a great morning so far and the Lord has been speaking to us and encountering us already. It is uh, great to see you all and it is my uh, significant challenge and, and privilege to be sharing on the Day of Atonement. Um, and I say significant challenge because the Day of Atonement is one of the most symbolic days on the calendar. There's lots of uh, metaphor and symbolism and imagery and those are not things that I like in life. If it's black, tell me it's black. If it's white, tell me it's white. I don't need symbols and imagery, they just confuse me. 
So it's been my challenge to spend a lot of time studying this and decoding, and Dad alluded, he gave me this a couple of months ago, because that's how long I need uh, to study a passage like this. And um, my goal today actually isn't to give a a kind of blow-by-blow of the Day of Atonement, kind of working through the passage and talking about all the things that are in it. Uh, My goal today is really to um, share with us what I believe is God's word for us as a community right now. And so if you want to understand the Day of Atonement better, you will learn a bunch of stuff today. But I want to encourage you to go to our website under the Biblical Feast tab. I want to encourage you to go to our YouTube account and basically just rewind a year and then rewind two years and you'll find two awesome teachings from Julie. Um, Otherwise, you can uh, look to uh, a resource that I have loved, which is the Bible Project podcast. Uh, They have a nine-hour series on Leviticus. Um, I've probably listened to it twice already, um, and an hour specifically on the Day of Atonement. So lots of resources you can go to for that more blow-by-blow. Today I'm also going to be covering a lot of information. I'm going to be moving through a lot of chapters and and kind of jumping into some different bits and grabbing little bits and pieces. Uh, So I've put all the verses on the screen. You are welcome to use your own Bible, but just don't like get lost jumping between bits and pieces. Uh, But please do be switched on. And also understand, I will not give the full explanation of everything, so feel free to, feel free to shoot me an email uh, if there was a point I made that you want to me, me to unpack a little bit further. Lastly, last bit of my preamble, I really do believe there's a message from God this morning, and I think it came through in worship really clearly as well. And I want to encourage us as a church this morning to set our hearts to respond to what the Lord is saying. So if you... Uh, listening and you feel a nudge, you feel God inclining your heart to something, incline your heart to it. If you hear his still small voice speaking something to you this morning, heed the voice of the Lord, incline your ear to what he's saying, that together this morning we would respond to him and we would grow in who he's called us to be as a people. So let me pray again really quickly. God, we need your help this morning because we want to hear from you. I need your help this morning because I'm trying to communicate a word from you. Lord, we need your voice. We need your word. Help us this morning. Help our spirits to be attentive. Help our minds to stay focused. Give us grace to hear your voice this morning. Amen. So jumping out... For a moment, we're talking about Leviticus, which is found in the first five books of the Bible, which are called the Torah, for those who haven't heard that before. And the Torah kind of breaks into these little segments and fragments because of the structure and the way it was written. And it starts with our two bookends, which are Genesis and Deuteronomy. And we know there are bookends because they end the same way. Genesis ends with the story of Jacob blessing his 12 sons, who are the 12 tribes of Israel, and declaring prophetic words over their future. Deuteronomy ends with a patriarch, in this case it's Moses, and he is blessing the 12 tribes of Israel and prophetically declaring over them their future. And so the mirroring of those two things tells us there's something very important in the middle. And I want to call that the first heart of the Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers form, I'm going to call it a triad, 
just because it's a cool word I heard one time. They go together for this reason, that at the very end of Exodus, in Exodus 40, which is the last chapter, 35, which is almost the last verse, they have built the tabernacle. The glory of God is in it. And Moses, who previously could talk face to face with God, now that the tabernacle is in the middle of Israel, he can't enter in. Something's shifted in the dynamic of God dwelling with man that Moses can't enter in. And Leviticus 1.1 starts with Moses still stuck outside the tent. And it says, the Lord called to Moses from the tent of meeting. And it's meant to kind of jar us a little bit and and wake us up to something. And I'm going to jump over for a second because in Numbers 1.1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. So somewhere in the next part that I'm going to call the second heart or the heart of the heart of the Torah, we find that somewhere between the end of Exodus and the start of Numbers, Moses has gone from stuck outside the tent to being in the tent talking to God again. And that gives us that at the heart of the Torah, we find Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And at the heart of these three books, we find the desire of God to have his people near to his heart by following the rules, rituals, and symbols of Leviticus. Are you with me? Excellent. Told you I was going to cover a lot of ground. So what then is at the heart of Leviticus? The answer is the Day of Atonement. A little bit of a spoiler alert, that's what we're talking about today. Now the Day of Atonement is actually, uh, it it is chapter 16, but it's an event that takes place from chapters 8, 9, 10 and 16. So we're going to jump really quickly and I'm going to give you a rundown of what happens in those passages. So this is what's called the narrative. Leviticus is full of rules and rituals and, and symbols and all these other ideas. I'm just going to grab the narrative for a minute of what happens. In Leviticus 8, the priesthood is being ordained. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments, the special priestly garments, the anointing oil, the bull of the sin, the ram of the unleavened bread, skipping a whole ton of information down to verse 31, boil the flesh of the sacrifice at the entrance of the tent of meeting and eat it and the bread. Uh, And jumping down again to verse 35, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded, this is Moses saying, and Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded Moses. So basically, we have the ordination of the priesthood. Up until this point, there was no functioning priesthood. God is establishing his priesthood. And basically, how he does it is he says, for seven days and nights, I want you to eat and drink, eat the bread, eat the meat, and stay in my presence. It's a very restful, Sabbathy kind of moment for the priesthood. Uh, and just highlighting at the bottom, they did all the things the Lord commanded them. Moving into Leviticus 9, on the eighth day, Moses called to Aaron and his sons, and then Moses gives them a specific list of things they have to get for the rituals they're about to do. And in verse 6, it says, This is the thing the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. It's a very, very cool moment. Very cool moment. The glory of the Lord fills 
the tabernacle in the midst of the people of Israel as they've come out of uh, Exodus into the wilderness and they are in that place of going, we want to be God's chosen people. And God is saying, I want to have you, my people. And he fills the tent with glory and they fall on their faces and shout for joy. They have done as the Lord commanded and the Lord has blessed them. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Verse 8 and 10, and the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. After following the commands of the Lord and seeing the presence of God, Nadab and Abihu get inspired, emboldened to do it their own way. It's an incredibly jarring moment where the author of life, life himself, the creator of all things, comes to dwell in their midst, into the holy place, and the very next moment we have in the holy place two likely charred dead bodies. And you all know what burning flesh smells like. It's, it's, not, it's not a nice experience. And we go from this incredible high moment of obedience leading to the glory of God into a moment of we'll do it our own way, probably trying to seek our own glory, And now the fire of the Lord has consumed them because they did not regard the Lord as holy. The Lord goes on to explain to Aaron, Aaron, you must distinguish between the holy and the common, the unclean and the clean, and teach it to the people of Israel. Now, the next part of the text is is Leviticus 11 through 15. Leviticus 11 through 15 is basically a bunch of, this is what's unclean, this is what's clean. This is what's unclean, this is what's clean, this is what's unclean, this is what's clean. Um, So we're not going to read that today. But it's an important part of the text and it, it flows from what has just been told to Aaron and his sons. And it's a really interesting side note of how zealous Aaron and his sons would become for knowing the difference between clean and unclean, holy and unholy, because it had just cost them their brothers and their two sons. So there's a zeal that would come and a make sure you get this right because of what happened to my own family. So in the heart of the heart of the heart of the Torah, this is the story we find. And can anyone see the connections between this and Adam and Eve? Did anyone notice we started with a seven day event orchestrated by God where we mostly didn't do much? And then it wasn't until that event finished on the eighth day that after, sorry, that after God had given them a beautiful place to enjoy and be with them and instructions on how to maintain it and keep it a beautiful place, on the eighth day they follow the instruction for a short period of time before deciding they can do it their own way. See, in the heart of the heart of the heart of the Torah, we find a replay of Eden. 
But the story doesn't end in chapter 10, just like Eden is not the end of a story. In chapter 16, which we'll jump into, we see the Day of Atonement. And in chapter 16, we find God making a way for His people to still come to Him. We find a God doing what He always does when mankind has failed, making another way. Almost like whether it's Adam and Eve in Eden, or it's Moses and Aaron on the mountain with the calf, or it's now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, we serve a God who will continually cover over, who will continually show mercy, who will continually extend grace, because he is committed to having and holding a precious people all for himself. It's like in his mind, he sees no other outcome. He sees no other ways. I will have and hold my people. They will be my people and I will be their God. He is fully committed to dwelling among his people and he will stop at nothing until he dwells fully with you and I. So sin has again reared its head and it is the problem. So we're going to look at God's solution. We're going to jump into the Day of Atonement and again, I'm going to skip over a bunch of things because I want to pull on this central thread that I feel like God is sharing with us this morning. So first of all, it's important to understand that this event takes place in a mini Eden. And some of you will be familiar with this, some of you will not. The tabernacle is a replica of the heavenly temple. Eden is a replica of the heavenly temple. They are both the image of what God ultimately wants. And one of the coolest kind of images I found here is that if you were to stand at the, the entrance to the tabernacle, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a curtain, and as you walk through it, the first thing you see is fire, because the first thing that's there is the altar. And then directly behind that is the holy place. And all over the holy place... Uh, woven into the curtains that cover it and the curtains that are in it are cherubim. Anyone know where we've seen the imagery of fire and cherubim before? Eden. See, the very things as they left Eden, God left a fiery sword and cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. And now he's set up an environment where he's inviting us to come through to come through the fire, to come through the cherubim, back to the place we were always meant to be. It's also a really interesting point to note, but if you line up the direction of the tabernacle correctly, the way you're supposed to, it faces east, which means you walk west. And which way were Adam and Eve taken out of the garden? East. So to return to the garden, you have to walk west. Even the direction the tabernacle is lined up is a symbol and a sign to us that God wants his people back in the garden, dwelling in the most holy place with him. Let's read a little bit about Leviticus, uh, Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And this shall be a statute forever to you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in a year because of all their sins. It's really important to understand because one of the questions we can ask ourselves when we look at the Day of Atonement is, like, is, is Jesus the Passover lamb or the atonement goat 
or is he the the bull or the ram or I thought he was the high priest or is he the light that shines yes 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 all of them speak of his glory in different ways all of them are signs and symbols designed to lead you to this glorious man. But I do want to just help you make the distinction between Passover and atonement that is very simply, uh, the day of atonement is for the people of Israel as a whole. Passover, and if you remember back to the original Passover coming out of Egypt, it was you take a lamb for your family and you paint the blood on your doors. And if you don't, the angel will kill your firstborn also, just like he will in Egypt. So it was a requirement for the individual in Passover to look after their own lamb and their own family. But this is actually in spite of whether you kept Passover. In spite of what your neighbor does down the road, the Lord is coming to atone for the sins of all of Israel in one moment. And to cleanse all of them in one moment. The next point uh, I just want to bring up is there's a lot of blood involved in in sacrifice. But particularly in the Day of Atonement. And there's a lot of um, kind of blood sprinkling. Which is kind of a weird activity to do these days. Um, But what we have to understand about the, the sacrificial system is that blood is a sign of life not of death you're not kind of weirdly celebrating the death of the animal or weirdly trying to show to god i really killed it here's all its blood the blood is the symbol of life and and i know it can be confusing um because i've heard a lot of you parents when your children come running to you crying your first assessment is well is there blood You know, you're trying to figure out how bad something is based on whether there's blood or not. But this is the opposite. This is actually the the sacrifice God has given his people to bring life. And he says here in Leviticus 17 that the life is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So the life is in the blood that would make atonement for us. So it's a... It's a good image, not a bad one. Um, and the reason why, we've kind of gone into this before, but the reason why is very simply because God says so. Um, blood is not uniquely special. I don't advise you to sprinkle it around your home or on your children or trying to cure things. Um, it, it is special and atoning because God says it is. So there you go. All right, the next point we need on our little map is the high priest. The high priest features throughout the entire Day of Atonement. And what you need to understand is that everything the high priest does is symbolically on behalf of the whole nation. So when he cleanses himself, it's like a cleaning. And it's a, it's a coming into the moment. Like he is aligning with what the Day of Atonement is about. And then there's the the sacrifices, and he sacrifices for himself, and then he sacrifices for the whole nation. And there's this um, understanding that as he enters into the most holy place, it's a statement of how close God is to his people in that moment. 
that there's no separation. He is the representative of Israel. And so what he goes through is a sign and a symbol for what God's chosen people are meant to be. It's also really important to know that on uh, the Day of Atonement, only the high priest works. Leviticus 23 uh, is the, the passage we often use to refer to all of the feasts because they're, they're condensed there. I want you to note, right, Leviticus 23 gives it six verses for the Day of Atonement. That's it. Look at the repetition in here. On the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it is the Day of Atonement when atonement is to be made for you before the Lord your God. Those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you. You must deny yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the seventh month until the following evening, you are to observe your Sabbath. Does anyone know why seven is important in the Bible? So, the high priest works on the Day of Atonement, and the people are really, like really, meant to not do anything and not eat anything. We are meant to rest to align ourselves with what the day of atonement is about and engage with god now the high priest does a lot of things on the day of atonement Uh, he sacrifices the ram he sacrifices the bull there's a sacrifice involving two goats Uh, there's sprinkling I, i think there's five changes of clothes that go on in the day of atonement there's a lot of bathing um all of which are awesome and i'm gonna skip simply to say this You must regard the Lord as holy. All of this movement, the changing of clothes, the cleansing, the rituals, really come down to, or or what I want to really highlight out of them is the care and diligence the high priest has to take to regard the Lord as holy. So we're going to jump into the two goats. This is the part I want to focus on today. So take two male goats for a sin offering. Just really simply drawing out there a fun photo of two goats, um, but also drawing out the fact that it's take two goats for one offering. Okay, so two goats are one offering. They are two dimensions of the same thing that is happening. So when you read them, it's not a case of one does something and one does the other. Together, they are the thing that is happening. Does that make sense? Awesome. Now what they do is they take the goats and they cast lots and one goat is for the Lord. I always thought that's the goat I'd want to be. Woohoo! He gets burnt and sacrificed. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. So that's where he goes. And then we have the second goat. And he gets all of the sins of the nation confessed onto his head. I use some awesome graphic design for this, you can tell. And Aaron shall confess over the second goat all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. And I've put into a zazzle because it, it just helps tie it all together. 
So these two goats show us the, the two dimensions of the same event or moment. That first there is a sacrifice made which atones for the sins of the entire nation. And you can kind of go, well, shouldn't sins have already been atoned for? Sort of. But there's an element to which there would be a bunch of people in the camp who probably didn't care if their sins got atoned for and didn't want to sacrifice an animal. So there's an element to which some people would have been rebellious. And so their sin wouldn't have been covered yet. And then there'd be people who were just lazy. And their sin wouldn't be covered because they could never be bothered coming to the tabernacle and making the sacrifice. And so we kind of have this, this dynamic where sin is in the camp that's been atoned for, but still there remains kind of a, a lingering damage from sin. And we have this other element where people, because they're hardened their heart and rebellious, or just because they're lazy and they think their sin is okay, there's still a cleansing and an atoning that needs to go on. There's actually no clearer picture of the challenge we have than Nadab and Abihu, who had been for seven days in the presence of God, eating, drinking, not leaving the tent. They're having a great time right there with God. And the very next day, they burn strange fire or profane fire or unauthorized fire, and they are killed by the presence of the Lord. Those who were meant to be the most holy ones, the priesthood, you know, bringing the people of Israel into the presence of God. The first day they get to do something and they mess it up. And this is all of our challenge. This is where the second goat comes in. All of the sins the nations are confessed and symbolically laid upon this goat. And his job is to take sin back to where it came from. I'm going to skip the debate around Azazel. Just understand it's some kind of powerful evil spirit. It could be kind of the evil one. It could be some kind of high ranking. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter what conclusion you come to. The imagery is what is important. But just as the serpent entered the garden, bringing sin into the garden, so the goat leaves the temple, taking the sins of the people with him, back into the wilderness from where they came. Can you see the imagery here? It's a case of there was no sin before the serpent entered. And so as the goat leaves, all of the confessed sin goes with him. And now the camp is restored to its Eden state. It's kind of a, a finalized symbolic kicking out of the garden. Get out, take all your stuff with you. Don't leave anything here. Get out of my house and never come back. It is for Israel a final breaking of their agreements with sin as the Lord cleanses it completely from their midst. So in the heart of the heart of the heart of the Torah, we have the story of God who longs for his people, setting up his tabernacle in their midst. We have mankind's failure through Nadab and Abihu, and we have the Day of Atonement, prophetically declaring that God is going to make complete atonement for sin and make a complete removal of sin from Israel so that his dwelling might be permanently among his people and we can dwell in his presence forever.
We see again God's full commitment to dwelling among us, having the source of life among us. And we who have experienced it, we know the glory of God's presence. That in His presence, in a moment, anything can change. Strongholds can break. Sickness can be healed. Mindsets restored. Relationships made whole. When the tree of life is in our midst, the presence of God is in our midst, our lives can work right. Our lives can exhibit and exude the glory of God that was always meant to be on His holy people. So as we lead up to this coming day of atonement, I want to invite us as a church to participate in it in a similar way to how Israel participated in it. Not to keep an ancient ritual, but because God desires to have his presence more fully in our midst. New Life, I believe God is wanting to tangibly increase his presence and his life in our midst. But how do we participate in a day where only the high priest works? Aren't we supposed to do nothing? Yes. You're correct. And I want to invite you to do nothing this day of atonement. But understand this, doing nothing is not passive. Doing nothing in the modern world is almost a weird form of violence. To take a day to make it so holy you would Do nothing would make it one of the strangest days of the year. It would make it one of the holiest days of the year. Doing nothing is not a form of apathy or ignorance, but in this case, doing nothing invites you into a posture of deep engagement. To ignore the Day of Atonement would be to go about your everyday, would be to go to work and think of other things and consume entertainment and be focused elsewhere. But doing nothing forces us to deeply engage with the atonement that we need. Doing nothing forces us to deeply engage with the love and life that we need. Doing nothing forces us to engage with the God we need to cleanse us and make us new. And if you really want to do nothing, you can also eat no food and drink no water. So that the affliction of your soul, the affliction of your appetites would remind you how much you need God. Doing nothing means that we have to let God remove the sin from our lives. Sorry, uh, doing nothing requires full faith in God's love to be enough, that in His deep love for us, He will repair the relationship that we have broken. That's the picture of the first goat, the atoning sacrifice. And doing nothing means we have to let God remove the sin from our lives. We have to let him search us. Let him talk with us. Let him highlight the areas that have gone astray. And just as the high priest confesses all the sin, he calls it what it is. No hiding. No excuses. No holding on to the little things. Just an open heart willing to confess and say, God... I have sinned. I need your help to remove this from my life. Cleanse me. And just like the second goat, take this sin back to the wilderness of evil it came from. And let me dwell in Eden forever. As my last 
thought for this morning, and then we're going to head into a response time. As I've looked at this story over the last couple of months in preparation for today, what's been staring me in the face is God's deep longing for his people. And it's important to understand that ultimately, this will be about God's deep longing for Israel. And a day will come where in a moment, all of their sin will be atoned for and all of their sin will be cleansed and removed. It's a really important part. It's why we pray for Israel on the Day of Atonement. But today for our church and what I feel like God is saying to us, my sense is that he's inviting us into more of his presence. He doesn't want to be God at a distance. And he is committed to overcoming every obstacle of captivity, sin, rebellion, apathy, ignorance, that he might have his special people dwelling together, working together, fully in love with him. Some of you are familiar with the history of new life. And to me, it's no mistake that we've been going back over some of our foundational teachings during the sacred assembly. One of the key themes from our early days comes from Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. Moses replied, If your presence, God, will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. New life has always had at its foundation and at its core a desire for this very thing. That God would presence himself among us in such a way that it makes us distinct among all the people around us. We want to be a people who go up, who do great exploits, who do great things in this region, who see lives and families restored, who see broken people made whole, who see healing and, and the gospel going forth, who see his kingdom in a, in a localized expression. And there's so many awesome things that are going on in this church. There's so many cool ways that's happening. But I feel like the Lord is inviting us to focus back on his presence. I feel like there's a fresh alignment God is calling us to because he is wanting to release more of his presence and power in our midst. I believe God is calling us this morning to again deeply cry out for his cleansing work to remove sin and to say, God, show us your glory. I want to highlight again the high priest's role of confession. He can't change the sin. He can't make the sinner less sinful. He can't fix Nadab and Abihu. But he can cry out to the Lord who can. And the role of the high priest is to confess and to be willing to say, God, I confess this is my sin. Take it back to the wilderness of evil it came from. 
Cleanse my heart that I would be pure before you. Make me blameless in your sight. For you want to dwell with me forever. Help me, God. As a church this morning, can we boldly believe that God wants to reveal more of his glory to us and through us? Can we boldly believe he wants to increase his presence among us and take us into the more that he has for us? And can we do it by returning to the Lord with fasting, with self-denial, bringing nothing to the table but a willingness that says yes, please, to God's atoning work and yes, please, to God's cleansing work, removing even the little sins from our hearts, the comfortable sins from our hearts, the culturally acceptable sins from our hearts. In closing this morning, I want to invite us as a church to respond. Because I want us just to take a moment to confess our sin before the Lord. We all have sin. And I want to encourage you just wherever it is you find yourself responding, just take a moment and say, God, I confess. God, I confess the thoughts. God, I confess the words. God, I confess the anger. God, I confess the judgment, the comparison, the envy, the, the whatever. I want to invite you to confess it. And in your mind, you can picture the same thing as the high priest if you want to. That as you're confessing it, you're laying it on some other animal to be taken away, to be taken out of your life, to be taken out of your camp, that God would cleanse you. You don't need to be ashamed this morning. You don't need to hold back. We've all got it. We're all dealing with different battles and different fights. But this morning, that God wants to release His glory and God wants to release His cleansing.